Welcome to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast, featuring sermons given at our church and community center located in the Lincoln Estates neighborhood in Gainesville, Florida. If you find these messages beneficial, if you're part of our community, or if you want to help support the services we're providing to Southeast Gainesville, you can text the word GIVE to 352-562-7771 to make tax-deductible donations. Here's this week's message. I'm going to move into teaching time today. We're in this series on the kingdom of God, uh, looking at the kingdom of God through the Sermon on the Mount, reading the Sermon on the Mount, basically as a manifesto for this Jesus way of life that is called the kingdom of God. And I want to put a quote up on the screen because this is really uh, important for today's message. This comes from the book by Howard Thurman called Jesus and the Disinherited, which was written in 1949 and could have been written yesterday. Thurman says this, a man is a man, and of course he's writing in 1949, so we might say a person is a person in this day, but a person is a person no more, no less. The awareness of this fact marks the supreme moment of human dignity. That's basically the theme for this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to talk about today, human dignity. It also applies to last week as well. So just to recap, We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and here are a few things the Sermon on the Mount is not. One, the Sermon on the Mount is not preaching perfectionism. It's not preaching idealism. It's not laying out some utopian vision that can't be met. This is not an ethic just for super apostles or for some time in the past or for some separate segment of like monastics or something. Uh, This is also not just Jesus talking to prove how unworthy or incapable or depraved we are. None of that's what's going on here. Uh, It's also not some sort of individualistic, self-centered, best life now only uh, sort of teaching. That's not what's going on. None of that's what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. And I know we've all heard teachings like that in the past, and I'm encouraging you to just take all that and just set it to the side. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus giving specific commands to his followers, which I hope is us. We want to be his followers. To be on this way uh, is to be a follower of Jesus. And this is how you, this is the path. This is the roadmap. This is how we do uh, the way of Jesus. This is how we live into the kingdom of God. Uh, As I said before, it's a manifesto for this way of life. It is both ideal, but it's also doable. We can do these things. We can keep these commands. We can follow these. Jesus gives them as commands because he expects us to follow them, and we are able to do them if we understand them well. Um, They're based on faith, hope, and love. Um, Faith, hope, and love towards God. We trust in God, and we hope in God, and we love God, and also in each other. We trust in each other that we can do these things. We hope for each other that we can do these things. And we love each other and that's how we do these things. And also towards ourselves. We trust ourselves that, yeah, I can I can do this. I can do this. I can walk this way. I can be a follower of Jesus. And we hope that we can become better at doing these things. And we have love for ourselves and we receive the love of God and we receive love from each other. And that's how all this works. Um, this is training. This is step-by-step training of moving towards Jesus, moving towards this way of life, moving towards shalom. That's what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. 
So the section we're going to look at today is chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And this is what that says. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You must not make oaths falsely, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. And I'm telling you not to swear oaths at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is God's footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither by your own head, as you can't make a single hair white or black. Let your speech be yes, yes, no, no. Anything beyond this comes from evil. Now, as we've done for the last two weeks, I have put the command that Jesus gives us before today it's been commands, but today it's just one in bold italics. And you'll see there on the screen, only the word let is a command in this passage. You will see some translations make it sound like Jesus giving us a command not to make oaths. But again, that middle section is not in the imperative tense. It's in the infinitive tense. So it's not actually a command. It might have a command-ish kind of read to it, especially the way we translate it into English. But that's not actually the order that Jesus is giving us. The order Jesus is giving us comes there at the end. Let your speech be yes, yes, no, no. And again, this passage, like we talked about before, is another one of these triads where Jesus starts with what's in Torah and states that and affirms it. He doesn't reject that or throw that away. And then he explains what the problem with that is. The problem's not with Torah. The problem is with us and how we misuse Torah. And then he gives his own way, his own instruction, his own command to his followers who are going to go above and beyond Torah, but in a way that can actually be done. So the first part of this is verse 33. This is the Torah statement. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you must not make oaths falsely, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. Oaths are a standard part of the Hebrew Bible and Jewish life. If you read the Old Testament, you will see that many people in the Hebrew Bible make oaths. It's a pretty common thing. Even Yahweh makes oaths. The, the covenant itself between Yahweh and Israel is an oath. So oath making and oath keeping are foundational uh, to Jewish culture, to, to justice, to that whole system of government. It's all based on making oaths. The oaths are between people and God, and the oaths are between people and each other. But even the oaths that are just between a person and another person are also oaths between those people and, and the Lord. So anytime you're making an oath in the Hebrew Bible or in Judaism, you're making an oath to another person, but you're doing that before God. So the oath is actually made to God as well. And this is not unlike our own culture in that there's a lot of oath making we do, even implicitly, that we don't necessarily think of. So I'm going to give you an example of pre-COVID times. You've got to use your imagination now. But imagine yourself going to a restaurant and sitting down and having a meal. A nice sit-down restaurant. Wouldn't it be nice to go to a restaurant and sit down and have a nice sit-down meal? Ha! Huh, those were the days, right? But when you go to a restaurant and you sit down, you have this implicit covenant, this agreement, this oath between you and the restaurant. You are committing to... Uh, behave, not, you know, dance on the table and yell and take your clothes off and be weird. Uh, you're also agreeing to pay your bill. 
most nice sit-down restaurants, you pay at the end of the meal, and they're trusting that you're going to pay uh, what you owe. They're feeding you in good faith, uh, sometimes very expensive food, trusting that you're going to pay the bill when it comes due. And at the same time, they're committing to you, they're making an agreement, a covenant to you that they're going to serve you uh, the food that's on the menu, that it's going to be prepared well and not poison you, and, and that things in the kitchen are clean and well taken care of, and all of that. There's sort of this implicit agreement that's going on. Same thing when we drive our cars. We have a covenant that we've agreed to that we're going to basically follow the rules of the road. Now, I know we fudge those, or some of you do, sometimes, um, but we can't just go willy-nilly or things don't go well. So anytime you live in a society, you have uh, agreements that you're making, a, a covenant that you're making to live together, and there are oaths that you're either expressing verbally and committing to or that, that are implicit in how we live. That's always going on at some level. But in Jewish culture specifically at this time, when Jesus is giving the sermon, there was a problem with their oath-making and oath-keeping system. And this is what he says in the second part. Verses 34 through 36 say, And I'm telling you not to swear oaths at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is God's footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither by your own head, as you can't make a single hair white or black. Now, to understand better what Jesus is getting at here, it helps to turn to Matthew 23, where he talks about this again and goes more into specifics. So take a look at this. This is Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. By the way, I told you two weeks ago uh, that Jesus calls someone a fool, and this is actually where it's at, uh, in case you were wondering. He says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, whoever swears by the temple, or takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? You also say, whoever swears by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it is obligated. Blind men, which is greater, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. See, what was going on at this time was that people were misusing their oaths. They were hair splitting. They were being hypocritical. They were claiming an oath for one thing and then not doing it and then using other words when they wanted to do it. They were using oath-making to avoid doing the very thing they were promising to do in the oaths that they were making. They were using like trick language. Well, I, you know, I said that, but that doesn't count. Um, but they were doing like like a children's game, <laughs> like, you know, I had my fingers crossed or something, or, or it's opposite day, except they were adults doing serious business and doing this. Uh, they were using the symbols of God's name and of God's temple to fool people into believing that they were truthful and that they were trustworthy. And sometimes they were doing it to manipulate and to exploit others through God's name, to take advantage of people and to impoverish them all through God's name. This was not a good thing. And Jesus is calling it out. And in general, what they were doing was creating this dangerous two-tiered system of speech where sometimes I'm telling the truth and sometimes I'm not telling the truth. Sometimes I'm being straightforward and sometimes I'm being duplicitous. And that 
doesn't work for society. That doesn't work for a culture. That doesn't work as humans relating to other humans. Uh, David Gushy and Glenn Stossen say it this way. In a society in which everyone is always calculating whether to tell a lie, trust breaks down and people learn to do only what is in their own selfish interest. People also learn to lie to God and to deceive themselves. What Jesus is saying is we have to set that aside. That's not what Torah intended, but of course it can be misused that way. If we're going to separate, like sometimes I'm making an oath, and when I'm doing that, I'm being truthful and it counts. But when I'm not making an oath, I might be lying to you and manipulating you and deceiving you. And by the way, I'm going to create these like pseudo-oaths that sound like an oath, but are actually over here in this duplicitous category. Jesus is saying, no, we have to not do that because Jesus is conceiving of life as a way, as a path. And you're either moving towards truth or you're moving away from truth. You're either moving toward transparency and relationship and community and covenant. Are you moving away from all of that? This applies to everything we say. This applies to how we listen. This applies to what we accept is true or not true. Believing lies is the path to immorality. Believing lies is the path to disobedience. Believing lies is the path to destruction of society and the breaking of all human relationships. We can't go down that path. When we go down that path, nothing good happens. Bad things happen. So in this moment, Jesus is teaching against all deceit, boasting, flattery, verbal ambushing, gaslighting, any speech that misleads or dissembles or is malicious. All of that is off the table for the Father of Jesus. All of that is moving us away from relationship, away from covenant, away from shalom with God and with each other and with creation and with ourselves. And we have to say no to that. The way of Jesus moves in the opposite direction of all of that. So what Jesus says instead is this one command he gives us. And it's short, but it's extremely profound. He says, let your speech be yes, yes, no, no. Anything beyond this comes from evil. Now, I told you last week, uh, the word there, evil, can mean the evil one. Or it could mean like systemic evil or evil as a force. It could also mean evil persons. So anytime someone's engaged in those things I just named, uh, deceit, boasting, uh, ambushing, gaslighting, that's not coming from a good place. That's not coming from a person who is in a good place. So we don't necessarily think people are evil, but sometimes we do evil things and we embody evil and we participate evil and we move in the direction of evil. And we've got to be moving away from that. And we've got to be supporting each other in moving away from that. And we've got to be resisting people who aren't moving away from that. So our yes has to be yes, and our no has to be no. What Jesus is saying here is that uh, you've just got to tell the truth. There's this routine telling of the truth all the time. Now what he's not doing here is he's not saying you can't ever make an oath. That's a legalistic uh, myopic reading of what Jesus says here. And some Christians do like, oh, I can never take an oath. He's not setting aside Torah. He's not saying you can't go to court and 
it's kind of weird to put your hand on the Bible when it says don't make oaths to make an oath. But okay, we can still do that. We can participate in the culture. I'm like, yeah, I can be a witness. I can testify. I can I can be honest and tell the truth. Uh, so help me God in, in whatever way that helps promote justice and helps promote humanity and helps promote community. Sure, I can do that. What Jesus is doing instead is he's promoting all of our speech to that level. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be my follower on this way, then everything you should, everything you say should be like you're testifying in court and you've given an oath. Everything you say is participating in covenant making, in shalom building, in community creating. Everything, everything you say and everything you listen to is involved in that nexus of relationships that we've been talking about since we talked about Trinity a couple of months ago. This is kingdom speech. This is kingdom listening. This is how the kingdom comes when we commit to this standard for our words and for our listening. Now, does this mean we can never lie? Not not even the so-called white lies, you know. When 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 your wife asks you what do you think of this dress, are you are you truly trapped? Um, <laughs> there's this great story in Genesis 18. Uh, where God tells Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a child. And Sarah laughs to herself and says, <laughs> I am withered. And am I going to bear a child? My husband is so old. That's what she thinks to herself. That's what it says in Genesis 18. You can read it. And then God says to Abraham, Sarah has thought this in her head. And God says to Abraham, why did Sarah say, will I bear a child when I'm so old? So you see what God does there. Sarah thinks Abraham is so old. And God says to Abraham, Sarah says she thinks she's old. God makes this little fudge, this little change, this little switch around to like not create tension between Abraham and Sarah uh, is how this uh, Hebrew commentary that I uh, read uh, presents it. And I just thought that was beautiful. Like, no, this doesn't mean you have to like have no couth uh, and have no like restriction, no restraint, no gate, no filter on your words. Sure, keep doing that. Speak the truth in love. And sometimes that just means closing your mouth. Okay, so this is not what that means. Um, and the most classic example of this is Immanuel Kant, uh, the 18th century philosopher who, who posed this, you know, made up story like if an axe murderer comes to your door and they're trying to kill your friend and your friend is hiding in the back room, is it okay to lie to the axe murderer? And Kant says, no, you should never tell a lie because he's made a rule for himself that no one should ever tell a lie and the world won't work if people are telling lies, which I agree with that part. Uh, but he says you have to be honest with the axe murderer and say, yeah, they're in the back. Go get them. Um, and that's one thing to talk about that as a theory and, and to debate that as sort of like this, you know, uh, moral conundrum. But it became a real issue in Germany 150 years later uh, when some folks were hiding Jews from Nazis and the Nazis would knock on the door. And then the question isn't just theoretical like it was for Kant. It was serious. And the answer is, yeah, you lie to the Nazis and tell them there's no one here. There's no one here that you're looking for. And what you're really saying when you say that is like, there's no one here for you to kill. There's no one here for you to torture. There's no one here for you to take away. Are you lying when you say that? Yes, you're lying when you say that. Is it morally wrong? No, it's the opposite of morally wrong. It's your moral duty. Because what has happened there is the Nazi has broken covenant. The Nazi has broken community because truth-telling is speech bedded in community. 
Jesus, remember, is talking here about oaths. He's talking about societal relationships. He's talking about covenant. And in a context where covenant has been broken, as it was with the Nazis and the Jews, you're under no obligation to tell them the truth. Just the opposite. They have broken things so badly that the moral obligation you have is to lie to them. And yeah, it's, it's harmful to everyone involved. But in that instance, actually lying is not saving the Jewish person and harming the Nazi. You're actually saving everyone. Hopefully, you're saving the Jewish person from being harmed, and you're saving the Nazi from committing more harm. So we have no covenant with evil authorities, is my point here. Uh, Where covenant has been broken, we are under no obligation to play by the rules that they make up to keep breaking covenant and keep doing violence. But that doesn't mean we're free to lie whenever we want to. But this is also biblical. If you look back in Exodus, the Hebrew midwives, uh, Shifra and Puah, they had lied to Pharaoh's face. Pharaoh's like, look, when the Hebrews have girls, you can keep them. When they have boys, you toss them in the Nile. And Shifra and Puah are like, um, we're, not, we're not following that rule. Uh, we're disobeying that. And so they disobeyed Pharaoh. And they kept having children. And then when Pharaoh called them, like, like, I see boys running around. You haven't been doing what I said. What are you doing? They flat out lied to his face. Like, look, the, the Hebrew women are strong. They give birth before you even get there. Total lie. And totally the moral thing to do, the right thing to do. So our yes, yes, and no, no is not about this pedantic, like, you know, ethics conundrums like that is in Kant. And it's not about giving in to evil. Everything I said last week about resisting evil still applies here. And if you have to resist evil by lying to it, then you lie to it. And Jesus is not commanding you to do otherwise. This is about the way of life moving towards community, moving towards covenant, moving towards shalom. And in that sense, this is doable. We can do this. We can do this without offending our wives. We can do this without uh, leaving the oppressed open to more oppression. The Spirit places within us, in our inward place, Psalms 51 says, the truth and the ability to do the truth. And this is when our head matches our mouth and matches our action. When what we think is what comes out of our mouth, and what comes out of our mouth is what we actually do. And what Jesus is calling us to is to be a community where this is what happens. Where we're a group of people founded on not lying to each other. Uh, Where we're a community built on speaking truly and on listening truly. Because unless we're listening truly, it makes no sense to even speak truly. David Gushy and Glenn Stassen say it this way, learning from unpleasant but truthful speech that confronts us is the foundation of growth and discipleship and is critical to life and covenant community. Learning from unpleasant, truthful speech is important. We have to hear what we don't want to hear. We have to hear what makes us uncomfortable. We have to hear especially cries of the oppressed. That's what we've been working on for the last eight sessions in our anti-racism workshop, is hearing the voice, voices of those who have been oppressed uh, through many years in our own society, in our own backyards. And that's really important, and it's also complicated, because truthful speech between those who are oppressed and those who have either been complicit or stationary under the oppression is really difficult because that entire situation is fraught with deceit, is fraught with dishonesty. Howard Thurman tells us, through the ages, 
The weak have survived by fooling the strong. If you think about nature, this makes sense. Have you ever seen a mother bird pretending she has a broken wing to fool a predator away from the nest? This is what the weak do when the strong force them to. They lie. They deceive because they have to to save their own lives. And we see this in Scripture. The book of Revelation is written about Rome, but it's encoded in such a way that uh, Romans couldn't understand what it was talking about. Same exact thing as the mother pretending she has a broken wing. And Thurman tells this story in Jesus and the Disinherited of one time when a blind black man was, was murdered by police officers. And the community was in an uproar, as you can imagine. Um, and they went to have the funeral for this blind man. And they were not allowed to have a sermon. The, the police were, were there. They were, they were worried about, you know, an outbreak of violence or, you know, a protest. And so, like, no sermon. The only thing you can do, they said, is you can have a prayer. And so the black pastor got up. And he didn't give a sermon, but he gave a really long prayer. And everything he wanted to say in the sermon, eulogizing the man, calling for justice, calling people to the Lord, he said all of that in the context of prayer. And the police were rendered powerless because he's just praying. And of course, I'm sure that made them feel uh, angsty and like they were being deceived. And they were being deceived. But the minister was put in a position where he had to engage in that deception to do the work he was called to do. So the powerful, Thurman teaches us, use deception uh, to place themselves in power and then to maintain that status quo of power. While the weak, the ones that are being oppressed by the powerful, use deception to eke out some measure of rights and, and, and to you know, procure or protect their own physical existence, their own lives, that comes at the cost of a serious degradation. Thurman says the weak have three alternatives um, in the face of oppression. The first is deception, to trick those who are in power to secure some measure of what they need to survive. And, and he tells us the entire dominant disinherited relationship is a covenant of deception. The whole thing is based on lies. He says it this way, the pattern of deception by which the weak are deprived of their civic, economic, political, and social rights, without its appearing that they are so deprived, is a matter of continuous and tragic amazement. The pattern of deception by which the weak circumvent the strong and manage to secure some of their political, economic, and social rights is a matter of continuous degradation. The penalty of deception is to become a deception, with all sense of moral discrimination vitiated. A man who lies habitually becomes a lie. And it is increasingly impossible for him to know when he is lying and when he is not. So Thurman says people who are being oppressed, the, those who have been disinherited, the weak, have three alternatives. One, they can engage in this deception. They can lie to the powers and they can get by with whatever they can get by through that process of lying, but it comes at a severe cost. The cost is degradation. The second alternative that people who are disinherited have is they can compromise. They can give in to the powers and get what the powers will give them. Thurman says this way, the choice seems to be between the ghetto or suicide. And those who are in power know that you're going to choose uh, the ghetto. And so you're compromising your living conditions. 
your freedoms, your self-esteem. You're accepting being three-fifths of a person. That's the price you pay for compromise. And those who are in power are prepared to deal ruthlessly with any form of effective protest, Thurman tells us. And the disinherited are not given any stake in the social order, not any real and meaningful power to change anything at the systemic level especially. And accepting this compromise entails internalizing that lie, becoming that lie. And it's a hideous lie, the lie that you're somehow inferior to those who are in power. It's a lie about yourself that you have to embrace and embody. And so deception leads to degradation and compromise leads to self-abasement and all that comes from that. And the third option, Thurman says, is complete and devastating sincerity. In explaining what he means by complete and devastating sincerity, Thurman quotes Mahatma Gandhi in a letter to Muriel Lester, which says, Speak the truth without fear and without exception, and see everyone whose work is related to your purpose. You are in God's work, so you need not fear man's scorn. If they listen to your requests and grant them, you will be satisfied. If they reject them, then you must make their rejection your strength. Thurman goes on, There must always be the confidence that the effect of truthfulness can be realized in the mind of the oppressor as well as the oppressed. There is no substitute for such a faith. Sincerity in human relations is equal to, and the same as, sincerity to God. In posing this third alternative, Thurman gives a serious warning, a warning to those who are weak. Doing that, engaging in truthful speech, speaking back to the powers, being sincere is devastating because it removes all of the defense mechanisms. The defense mechanisms were deception and compromise. And those defense mechanisms are necessary to survival under oppression. So if you set aside deception, you set aside compromise, and you have the courage to speak truthfully, um, you're, you're exposed. You're left without defense. And that's one way to tell who's oppressed, right? Is who gets attacked for speaking up for themselves? Who gets attacked for speaking up for their community? Is one way to tell who's on the underside of community, who's being oppressed, who's being taken advantage of. But it also leaves those who are in power with no defense. The lie of the superior inferior, the lie of the three-fifths is exposed. The lie of racism is exposed in that moment. And then those who are in power have a pretty simple either-or choice. They can reform or they can attack. They can change and, and deconstruct the system of oppression that they have built or are benefited from, or they can engage in violence. They can suppress and put back down and force those who have spoken out back into either compromise or into deception. And this, sisters and brothers, I want to suggest to you, is what's going on right now with Black Lives Matter. It's no secret that people of color have been oppressed for centuries in our country. Howard Thurman wrote this book in 1949, and I'm telling you he could have written it this year, and it would be no less relevant and no less true and no less helpful. Things haven't changed all that much. 
And they haven't changed that much because those who are oppressed, those who are weak, those who are disinherited, when they have the courage to speak with complete and devastating sincerity, they don't have enough of us listening to them and taking to heart what they're saying. When they say Black Lives Matter, we say, well, well, you know, all lives matter or like, well, you can't say that unless you also condemn looting and condemn rioting and condemn Marxism. We can't just let you say that and deal with what you said. We have to also make you jump through these hoops, putting you back in a situation where you have to at least compromise some. If we're going to really listen to people and give them the opportunity to step up out of the oppression they've been placed under, we have to let them speak what they have to say and we have to take it to heart without putting stipulations on them. If we're not willing to do that, then we're not ready to listen yet. And if we're not ready to listen yet, then things can't change because we're not ready to live in this way of truth, which requires us to listen to the truth when it's spoken to us. Dr. Soon Chan Ra says it this way, Black Lives Matter is a theological pronouncement. It is an ecclesial theological pronouncement because it is a biblical statement that speaks against unbiblical statements in the world. I mean, it's about as prophetic and biblical as you're going to get when you say Black Lives Matter. Here's why. Throughout human history and throughout American history, almost every single moment in American history said Black Lives do not matter. Black Lives do not matter. By the way, there's never been a moment in American history where you've said all lives do not matter. That's never happened. You might have said, okay, yellow lives don't matter, or red lives don't matter, or baby lives don't matter. There's never been a moment when you said all lives do not matter. So to say all lives matter is not responding to a historical reality, but when you say black lives matter, it is responding to historical reality. For centuries, the world has said this evil statement, black lives do not matter. That's why we can keep them in slavery. That's why you can implement Jim Crow laws. That's why we're going to lynch them. That's why the police can kill them. I would add that's why mass incarceration is allowed. That's why we can do all these things because over and over again, society has said black lives do not matter. So then the church should say black lives matter because we believe in the scripture. We believe in the word of God. The word of God says black lives matter because all humanity is made in the image of God. And all humanity has a unique value because we're made in the image of God. So Black Lives Matter is a theological repudiation of historical evil that is in our society. We're in a cultural moment like I've never experienced before. When truth is almost unheard of, it seems sometimes, especially from many of our political leaders, especially from some of our news outlets, especially from social media. The truth matters. Listening to truth matters. Listening to the voice of oppressed people matters. Black lives matter. That has to be part of what we understand the way of Jesus to be about. That has to be part of what we understand Gainesville Vineyard to be about. Is helping right that historic wrong that has taken place in our country and in our town 
and in our neighborhood. So far in this series on the Sermon on the Mount and the Kingdom of God, we looked at three things. Two weeks ago, we talked about dealing with anger. And the basic message there was that the Kingdom of God proclaims and enacts the holiness of reconciliation. Reconciliation work is what we're all about if we're on the way of Jesus. And then last week, we talked about turning the other cheek. And the basic message there was about the holiness of human dignity and how all of our work has to be promoting resistance to anything that puts people down, anything that shames, anything that degrades. We resist that. We resist that creatively, and we resist that joyfully, and we resist that hopefully, and that is kingdom work. And the basic message today, this yes, yes, and no, no, is that the holiness of living in truthful covenant, that our entire lives are an oath, an oath to God and an oath to our fellow humans, an oath to our created world, an oath to ourselves that we're going to live this way, this reconciling way, this dignifying way. We're going to resist evil and do good. This is the journey we are on. This is the way of Jesus. I'll put it up again. Howard Thurman says, A man is a man, no more, no less. The awareness of this fact marks the supreme moment of human dignity. That is a true statement. And that's a statement I hope we can ingrain into the very fabric of our lives and our community here at Gainesville Vineyard. So I encourage you to three things today. First, to develop habits and practices of listening to truth. On the personal level, for yourself, listen to yourself. You tell yourself the truth if you'll pay attention. Listen to your body. It will tell you the truth. Um, It'll tell you you're getting older and you need more sleep uh, or you need more exercise or you need a better diet. Uh, Listen to your emotions, as we talked about two weeks ago. When you are angry or anxious or upset, pay attention. Honor those emotions. Listen to that. What is your your self telling you? Listen to your self-talk. We all engage in self-talk, or I hope we do. I do. Um, Don't lie to yourself about yourself in your self-talk. Be critical. When you hear that thought come across your brain or wherever uh, inside you, and you're like, well, that's not kind. That's not shalom. Don't lie to yourself about you. Develop practices of telling yourself the truth about you. And and listen to the stories of others. Listen to the stories of those who have been oppressed. If you didn't go through the anti-racism workshop this time, I need you to sign up for it when we do it again next year, probably in January. I don't know exactly the dates yet. You've got to hear these stories. It will change your life. And it will change your life in ways that your life needs to be changed. So we have to listen to the oppression of others. We cannot fall for the lie of the status quo. Those of you who are white and middle or upper class, you have to listen to me. We are being deceived. There are forces at work that want to trick us into just going along with the status quo. Of not doing the things that need to happen to make our society better for everyone. 
we can't keep living into that lie because that lie doesn't just harm the people who are obviously being harmed by it. It harms us too in ways that are less obvious but are no less insidious. We can't keep living those lies. We can't keep living those deceptions. We also have to listen to the truth about creation. We can't keep listening to lies about climate science. It's true. Global warming is true. We have to listen to these things. We have to adjust our behaviors or we're going to be in much more trouble than we're already in. And now we're at like, I don't know, you know, how many, we're on like gamma or delta for tropical storms this year. It's getting out of hand again. We have to listen to the Holy Spirit. We have to not listen to the enemy who whispers those things in us as well and speaks to us from other sources also. We have to be listening for truth and paying attention and not buying in to lies. We also have to be speaking the truth. Speaking the truth creates shalom. It brings about reconciliation. It promotes human dignity. And I would encourage you to engage in practices where you're truthful and you're shalom-making about your own self-worth. That you, you engage in self-talk that is self-affirming. I know I, I gave a little shade to like self-affirmation or whatever, or your best life now. There's truth in that. It's just that that's not all of the truth. So yeah, engage in affirming self-talk. You are worthwhile. You are good. You are created in the image of God. Those things are true, and we have to learn to tell ourselves those things. And put down the lies that we tell ourselves if we're not sowing truth about ourselves into ourselves. We also have to use our words to care for and to reconcile with and to ask forgiveness and give forgiveness to each other and to defend and protect those who need defense and protection. We have to speak out against injustice. We have to use the power we have, the voice we have, to promote the well-being of others. And we have to speak for the trees, <laughs> as Dr. Seuss told us to say. We have to speak up for our creation, for the world around us. We have an obligation to that as well. And we have to pray honest when we're speaking to God. Don't lie to God. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't pretend with God like things are okay. Tell God how you feel and what you think and your perspective on what's really going on. God can take it. Uh, it'll be okay. Um, he already knows what you're thinking anyway. Um, the last thing I will say today is I would really encourage you to think about and reflect on and meditate on and even pray about this idea that Jesus is talking here all about oaths and about our speech indicating anytime we say yes, yes, or no, no, we're enacting an oath. That our entire uh, world, our entire human family is interconnected. We are one human family. We're also connected to creation. We're also connected to God. I talked about this a while back. You know, we stand in this nexus with the Trinity. We're invited into this relationship. It's all relational all the way down. And this has some ramifications for us. One, we live with the actions of the past, whether they were good or whether they were sinful. All the way back. People say, well, I didn't own slaves. None of my family owned slaves. It doesn't matter. We own slaves. Our society, our nation owns slaves. The ramifications with it, of it are still with us now. The ramifications of Jim Crow are still with us now. It's called mass incarceration, among other things. 
we have an obligation, a responsibility to deal with those things because we're here and we're connected to it. We can't escape it. We're in covenant with it, whether we like it or not. That's what Jesus is telling us here. It's not, I want you to be in covenant. It's like you are in covenant, so act like it because it's true already. We also live with the actions of each other right now, whether they're good or whether they're sinful. We're seeing that now. When we don't wear masks, when we don't socially distance, we're spreading coronavirus. That's just one example because everything we do is also spreading around. Every unkind thing we say, every unkind post, when you post something on social media that's mean, you have no idea how far that reaches or how many people see that or what random person sees that at just the wrong time and it really sends them down. You have to guard your speech. You have to speak truth. You have to speak shalom. You have to speak in love all the time, as much as we're able to do, because it has ramifications all the way out. And we're responsible for what we say, and we're responsible for what each other says. When our leaders say things that aren't true, it affects us, so obligates us. That's what Jesus is saying here. Everything between us is covenant. Everything we say is an oath, so we should act like it. And a lot of times that means we need to confess, and we need to give and receive forgiveness. Those are things we'll talk about in coming weeks. We need to go in the other direction as far as we can from lies and deception and gaslighting and all of that. We have to be on the way of truth to be on the way of Jesus. And we can. We can do this. We can live truthfully. We can fulfill our oaths. We are able to do that. We can practice being honest with what we say. We can practice being honest in our listening, especially to the vulnerable and the oppressed. We can, be, we can refuse to be taken in by the lies of the status quo. We can see through those deceptions. They're not hard to see through. They've gotten really apparent if we're paying attention. We can live into the reality of this way, that we are in covenant relationship with each other, with all of each other, that we are in covenant relationship with creation. We are put here to take care of the world and be responsible for it. We are in covenant relationship with the Trinity, with God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, thanks to Jesus and his way. Let's take communion. If you've got something to eat, grab that. I once again have a piece of uh, rice checks, gluten-free. Um, as you lift this up, here's the toast we're going to make or the consecration we're going to make uh, to whatever we're eating. It becomes the body of Christ as we lift it up and we're going to say, here's the truth. Uh, we are connected together as one body with each other, all of each other, and with everything. We owe the truth to ourselves. We owe the truth to each other. We owe the truth to every human. We owe the truth to all of creation. And we owe the truth to God. And this is the fundamental truth. We are all interconnected. So here's the truth. Take your cup. I've got some cinnamon tea this morning. And as we lift this cup together, this becomes the blood of Jesus as we consecrate it together. And the toast we're going to make is, here's to Jesus, because Jesus is the truth. Truth is always Jesus-shaped. Those who carry crosses work with the grain of the universe. 
Jesus calls us away from all dehumanizing, all duplicity, and towards life, and towards hope, and towards truth, and towards himself. Here's to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the truth. Thank you that you invite us to live in what seems at the one time so straightforward and so difficult, but may not appear as radical as it really is to be people who commit to not lying to each other unless we're protecting the oppressed in very specific situations. We commit to being a community that tells each other the truth, that listens to each other as we try to share our hearts and share the truth, who press into the, the, the oathness, the interconnectedness of all of our lives. I pray that you would help us to understand um, what it means to live yes, yes, and no, no. That we would say yes to you and yes to life and, less to, and yes to human dignity and no to oppression and no to lies and no to deception and no to death. We pray for everyone who's suffering with COVID right now. The numbers are ramping up and so many have it. We pray that everyone who has it would be healed and restored to life. We pray that you would uh, protect folks who don't have it from getting it. We pray for peace. We pray for shalom. We pray that we would be people who could bring reconciliation, true, truthful reconciliation and shalom to our little part of this interconnected world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being our truth. Amen. Here's another true statement. I love you. And I'm grateful for you. And I hope to talk to you or see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast. For more information about our church and community center, including our food pantry, life skills training, legal aid, after school and sports programs, and international missions, and how to contact us, visit GainesvilleVineyard.org or find us on Facebook. Our page name is GN Vineyard. We also have original worship songs available on iTunes. Just search for Gainesville Vineyard. You can support the work we're doing by texting the word GIVE to 352-562-7771. All donations are tax deductible. We appreciate you listening to this message and pray the Spirit speaks directly to you through something you've heard today. God bless.